Welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. I am your host, Juan Llamas Rodriguez. Today we are discussing informal media markets, cinephilia, and the film cultures of the Philippines. Our guest is Dr. Jasmine Nadua Trice. She is Associate Professor of Cinema and Media Studies in the Department of Film, Television, and Digital Media at the University of California, Los Angeles. She has written on Southeast Asian women filmmakers, ethnoburban multiplexes, production subcultures in Los Angeles, visual culture and embodiment in Colonial Manila, and the relationship between film practice and theory. Her first book, City of Screens, Imagining Audiences in Manila's Alternative Film Culture, uh, from Duke University Press 2021, examines the politics of cinema circulation in early 2000s Manila, Philippines. Jasmine, welcome to the Global Media Cultures podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Juan. I'd like to start asking you about your research interests. How would you describe these topics and why do they interest you? Um, and why are they an important area for us to study? So I would say um, at the really, the very broadest level, I'm interested in the ways that film practitioners grapple with the transformations wrought by what you might call global modernities, particularly mm -hmm. in moments of political, social, and maybe technological change. Um, and so when I talk about global modernities, sometimes this can take, for example, spatial um, forms. So the ways that city spaces have been transformed through the building of malls, privatized condominium complexes, um, casino high-rises, um, or even in rural areas, um, there are filmmakers who are dealing with um, the building and construction of dams, often um, funded through uh, foreign direct investment and things like this. Um, and my work is primarily um, right now in Southeast Asia, though not exclusively. Mm -hmm. um, so when I say the term film practice, I mean it very expansively to include filmmakers who might engage with um, images of urban development, but also archivists who have to deal with the lack of state support, as well as the conditions um, in many places of tropical weather or increased flooding due to climate change, film festival programmers who have to deal with censorship, um, and even, I would say, audiences who might just quickly respond to texts um, in social media platforms. So, um, you know, I'm interested in making sense of a pretty broad constellation of practices to give a kind of holistic picture of how the networks of um, cultural practices and institutions that we understand as the cinema um, become meaningful within a particular time and space. Great. Um, so today we're discussing specifically one of your articles um, called Manila's New Cinephilia, which was published in Quarterly Review of Film and Video in 2015. Um, could you start by giving us a brief history of this, of this article? when these sort of ideas began to originate, how did it come about? Um, how did it change in sort of the process of research and, and writing? Sure, so um, the article actually was really um, a matter of circumstance. So, um, you know, I had uh, pursued a different project or a related but different project on Quiapo, which is one of, at the time in the early aughts was really the hub of pirated 
um, media informal DVD circulation. Um, it was the main marketplace in the city. And so I became, um, you know, a frequent shopper of the space, but also in the space, but also became really interested in it um, for uh, my book project. And so um, I also became interested in the ways that it was being sort of constructed and imagined in the burgeoning internet culture of the early aughts. So mm-hmm. message boards and things like this, blogs, and I ended up gathering a lot more um, sort of examples of people talking about Chiapo and talking about pirated DVDs than I could actually use. And so, you know, I ended up using material in a book chapter and then in another article that was published um, before this one. And I had kind of material left over. And so I wasn't quite sure what I would do with it. If anything, you know, a lot of the the filmmakers and organizers that I worked with and, and knew in Manila um, were really, really um, intense cinephiles, but I think the practices didn't always fit in with a lot of the um, a lot of the discourse that was being published sort of in the wake of the transition to digital. And so I became interested in that kind of um, gap and ways to explore it. And I did have all of this kind of material that I hadn't really used elsewhere. Um, And so uh, that's kind of how this uh, article came about. Right. So this article focuses on Manila generally and the Chiapo um, uh, market. And as you mentioned earlier, a lot of your research is on um, Southeast Asia. So can you tell us a little bit about why this is the sort of site where you're um, investigating your, your interest in broadly film practices um, and um, across like, production and, and reception? Like, what, what is it about that site that is uh, interesting or generative? Yeah, thanks. Um, so... Again, and I think this is such a good lesson uh, to learn maybe for students, but, um, you know, I was really open to the contingencies of, you know, what happens when you go and you pursue a field of research and chance kind of puts you in a particular place at a particular time. Mm -hmm. So I had a completely different, so I really wanted to go to the Philippines because I have family there and I, it was kind of like a personal sort of impetus partly you know I, I wanted to I had lived there as a kid I wanted to kind of go back as an adult and you know I had read about um, the really robust um, film culture there um, that had sort of uh, blossomed you know mid-century and um, taken off during the 70s and 80s in a more sort of art cinema format um, which I can talk about later but um, and so I wanted to go and see more of what this was about and I had this sort of project in mind that was really going to be about um, malls and mall multiplex cinemas. Mm -hmm. And that ended up being one chapter um, in the book. And then, um, you know, but when I got there, I ended up meeting programmers and critics and um, uh, people who, filmmakers who were really doing um, new things with what at the time was this kind of burgeoning medium of low cost digital video. And so, um, you know, and this was something that was happening in, uh, you know, urban metros and also regional centers um, around, uh, the, around Southeast Asia as well. And so I also eventually became involved with this group called the Association for Southeast Asian Cinemas, um, which mm-hmm. I'm still involved with, um, which 
at the time was doing really important work to sort of bring together people who were invested in film from all walks of life, people who were sort of um, tangentially interested in movies, um, students, right. but also filmmakers, archivists, critics, and academics. And so, um, yeah, so I, I ended up just coming to Manila and moving there at a really good time. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I think when I began to watch more of the films and participate in screenings and read people's um, criticism and writing, um, I just thought that it was such a rich example of the ways that um, different communities can kind of come together and um, produce really compelling um, work on in multiple registers um, that was engaging often with um, some of these sort of structural problems um, or significant part of the context there. So a lack of exhibition spaces, um, the lack of uh, a sort of centralized archival um, archive. Uh, so um, the sort of, you know, a kind of sense that uh, that there wasn't a lot of um, infrastructural support um, for for independent filmmaking at at that time. There was just beginning to be um, through through um, through organizations like um, Cinema Laya and film festivals like Cinema One, um, but it was really something that was you know just beginning to emerge in the early aughts. Right, right. So you've been mentioning a lot about the practices. Um, of um, archiving or um, cinema audiences. Could you tell us a little bit about what Philippine cine cinema was like? What the kind of films were like? What kind of subjects um, were, were covered? You mentioned that independent cinema was starting to, to emerge then, but what was mainstream cinema like at the time? Yeah. Yeah, so mainstream cinema um, was coming out of, um, well, there were two kind of major um, media kind of conglomerates, GMA and um, ABS-CBN at the time. And um, they sort of uh, had uh, affiliated stars. So the star system is really huge. And the stars are also really very much a part of the cityscape. And I should say also that I'm giving a very Manila-centric narrative mm -hmm. of film culture. It's really specific to Manila. And so, you know, people from other parts of the region, from Cebu, from, uh, you know, other parts of the region, Mindanao, they might all like listen to this and think, you know, this is not Philippine film culture. This is really specifically Manila. And so right. I just also want to clarify that because, right. Right. Um, yeah, that's important. But, um, but I would say ABS-CBN and uh, GMA were the, the two um, major sort of media conglomerates. And so you had lots of um, uh, teleseria, like, uh, like telenovela type of soap mm -hmm. operas. And then the stars would also do genre pictures and they would be arranged into like love teams and pop songs and endorsements that would be um, in these huge sort of billboards that kind of lined the streets of Manila. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, the kind of what you might call the, the popular um, cinema, popular media um, was really ubiquitous. But at the same time, the numbers of films that were being made was really um, going down um, at the time, um, sort of in the kind of late 90s. 
Um, and so then the numbers sort of picked up with the advent of digital video and kind of independent productions. Um, and I would say in the 90s, there were film, a lot of films being made. I, I, I shouldn't say that like, it's like there was nothing going on because there were, they were just really quickly um, produced. They were called essentially like 7-7, seven, seven, like films that were seven days in production or in seven days in post-production. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's not as if um, work wasn't being made. Um, so those films, I think, you know, were, um, the, you know, they had this uh, a particular like, um, you know, place in the mediascape. Um, and, uh, and then that ended up sort of um, changing in sort of the post-millennial sort of period. And you ended up having more um, independent productions, which were, and you were asking about the specific films. Um, so I quote at the beginning of the article, um, Toro Toro Teros, which is a film that was, I think, made 2006, 2007. I think it's a good example to talk about film mm -hmm. from this period because it uses this kind of degraded video aesthetic and it's a lot of found footage in some ways, not exactly found footage, but footage sort of captured on the fly um, right. and then later structured together in a kind of collage. And um, the filmmaker, John Torres, uh, he uh, was, he's, I think, also a writer and um, does a kind of voiceover. It's kind of a love story. It's part of it is about um, someone that he met and kind of the international uh, film festival uh, circuits that he had a kind of relationship with. Um, and it's also about the figure of the media pirate and about the kind of volatility of borders and the um, ways that, for example, people from um, the Philippines uh, could be put on terrorist watch lists and things like this. Um, so he kind of plays with this idea of the figure of the media pirate um, and the idea of um, filmmakers um, participating in that culture of piracy and what that might mean within a broader kind of um, global film context. Um, so that's one example. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a film that I've shown in class before is um, uh, Woman in the Septic Tank. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Which, which also is reflective about its sort of place in the world and the potential for circulating in the film's uh, festival circuit, right? Um, and also very emblematic of the, the star system um, that you mentioned, right, in the terms of also drawing attention to sort of previous forms of uh, film production that relied on bankable stars and all this investment from, from the main, main networks and then marrying that with the independent um, sort of digital-born kind of filmmaking as well. Yeah, I've shown that film in class as well. It's such a um, good example for, um, yeah, the ways that um, sort of the desire for festival accolades can sort of go sideways. Um, yeah, that's a really exactly. great, great example. Yeah, yeah. It's very self-reflexive about the assumptions that we make about what is, a, I don't know, um, art or um, quality film for, for festivals. Um, well, speaking of film practices, and I think film festivals really um, tie into this as well, but one of the key crucial concepts of this analysis in this article is cinephilia, right? And I think you mentioned that you were looking at film practices broadly to think about the sort of infrastructural aspect of uh, film circulation. But a lot of this material then found this sort of different angle or uh, found this different venue when you thought about it through cinephilia. Um, so could you give us a sort of a brief take on 
um, the concept of phenophilia and how you're using it in, in, in the article. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not exactly a cinephilia scholar. This is the only thing I've written about it. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's an interesting term, um, partly because it has this kind of, there's this crossover between, um, you know, what you might call uh, more sort of public criticism um, that's mm -hmm. in newspapers and magazines, um, which are kind of, which sometimes use or mobilize this term. And, um, uh, academic sort of analysis of, of film. Um, so it's an anglicized French term um, that I think emerged in the 1920s alongside cine clubs and things like this. And then it's most associated with Andre Bazin and critics who sort of presaged the French new wave um, in post-World War II France. Um, and then it became kind of associated with um, auteur theory in the 1960s. So, so Andrew um, Saris's sort of uh, appropriation of, of that term of the auteur, the director who was the author of the film and um, became associated with that. And then, you know, film and media studies as it moved into the academy um, began to, um, as a field, become more interested in different kinds of critical tools. And so, you know, um, ideas around screen theory and things like this were um, certainly interested in really devoted analysis of the text, but maybe not thinking about pleasure in the same ways and not thinking about you know, the idea of the love of cinema in a different, in that way. And so um, things sort of shifted. Um, but you also had modes of analysis um, that were somewhat similar to what people had sort of thought about with cinephilia in terms of the love of cinema, like fandom studies, you know, with the work of like Henry Jenkins, or even like cult and paracinematic practices, right. um, you know, which are working in a much more um, kind of uh, you could say popular uh, context, um, looking at movies that aren't necessarily the types of things that would get called like auteur movies, but that are really important, you know, and so, um, and interesting um, and using close reading practices for that. And I think cinephilia has really been associated with close reading um, of films. So really like um, being closely engaged with the text and the image. So, um, you know, I think the, the second wave, what some critics have called Cinephilia 2, um, really began with uh, digital media and the way that celluloid was be being supplanted by digital. And so, you know, in um, 1996, Susan Sontag published this manifesto on the decay of cinema, which was basically about, um, you know, it's kind of a nostalgic lament for um, the theatrical exhibition and yeah, I became interested in um, some of this discourse and also some of the work by scholars who are trying to complicate and trouble um, some of its underlying assumptions. Um, so, you know, I quote um, uh, Dale Hudson and Patricia uh, Zimmerman's work, um, you know, and they're really interested in the ways that this idea of digital cinephilia really became this kind of um, technophilia that was aligned with transnational media corporations. And so they said that it was a kind of diminishment of um, the potentials of um, the public, like basically 
the public. It was about sort of fetishizing technology, um, consumerism, sort of retreating into the individualized home space. Um, right. What Barbara Klinger has called, like, I think it's like a fortress mentality of the early aughts. And so um, kind of a post 9-11 fortress mentality of wanting to stay home. And so it's interesting, actually, to think about that in a post-pandemic context. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, So, you know, I think uh, Hudson and Zimmerman's uh, piece, which is from 2009, was really trying to um, complicate ideas around cinephilia and think about what its potentials might be if you took it outside of of that context. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think one of the things that's interesting in cinephilia as a concept and as a discourse is how it's shifted given, you know, like cinema's technical and institutional different formations, right? From the emergence of cine clubs um, to the sort of cahier um, auteur theory um, version of cinephilia to the like the turn of the century, um, new digital technologies um, as well. And as you mentioned, the cognate terms in terms of thinking of like cult um, film and fandom, which share some of that, the in the broadest sense, the like sort of love of particular texts. Um, but it's, I think, as, as you rightly point out, one of the things that's interesting about cinephilia is it keeps coming back to, one of the distinguishing aspects is the sort of emphasis on close reading, mm-hmm. right? And um, on, on aspects of form. So the more, the more familiar aspect that I'm, the, the part that I'm more familiar with in terms of cinephilia is um, in the, now the rise of videographic criticism, um, which is also the result of digital technologies and the ubiquity that we can find content for all of this. And a lot of early video essays are, are really about sort of narrowing in on that one small moment in that one film and what does that all mean and tying it into all these broader thinking about, uh, about the medium. And so those, those kinds of practices seem to be the through line, right, of really focusing on form, focusing on close reading, um, even as there's new potentials um, opened up by the new technologies, right? And restrictions as well, right? I think the, the aspect around um, being tied to transnational corporations and which DVDs have the like super special version with all the extras that really foster that sense of like really caring about the craft or what we could think of it now as like the, um, the criterion collection version of, of which films are valued more than others is still something to be interrogated. Uh, one of the things in, in this, let's say, broader um, discourse around cinephilia and pushing out the assumptions and, um, that, it, that it has and how do we rethink them, one of the assumptions that you, you and your article push at um, is shifting the focus of cinephilia from the consumption aspect or uh, the criticism aspect, right? As you point out, is one of those terms that um, bridges the popular criticism and the academic aspect. Um, but your work here focuses on circulation as the, the locus or the focus for, for cinephilia. Can you, can you tell us more about that? As I was gathering kind of materials to work with and thinking about the ways that the DVD marketplaces were being constructed and imagined in... Um, in all of these kind of online forums, and then also thinking about my own kind of um, media practices, which are not really in the article, but are kind of like background mm-hmm. in the article. Um, you know, I uh, I became interested in the kinds of work um, that 
audience members were willing to do to locate DVDs. Not necessarily like some of them are like, you know, classic movies or things like this, but some of them are just movies that weren't really around in the theaters or were really expensive in the theaters. Um, and, you know, people were really willing to develop um, a pretty robust set of skills. And I think, you know, I became interested in the ways that um, that was also a form of um, of cinephilia. And it worked very differently from, you know, the kind of close attention to form and, um, you know, aesthetics and the text um, outside of the narrative, you know, that really characterizes a lot of um of cinephilia, ideas of cinephilia. Mm -hmm. um, and I became more interested in um, the kinds of investments that drive people to, you know, participate in message boards, laying out maps where, you know, you can go to this vendor and get this film. And, you know, um, this is the best time to go. This is, you know, um, these, this is the neighborhood you want to go to. Um, and, uh, you know, I became interested in um, the amount of, um, work that people were willing to do and how it might be, um, how it might be beneficial, um, to think about that work and that expertise mm -hmm. alongside these concepts, um, that, you know, are kind of, had been thought about in a very particular ways, you know, around like classics of world cinema, that type of thing, and mm -hmm. close readings of texts. Um, you know, that stuff is great. Like I love watching video essays and things like that too, but, um, but I also think there's something really great about people like developing really specific knowledge and sharing it as a means of, you know, getting like access to a particular um, set of films. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it's, it's something that we kind of take for granted in the sort of dominant way of thinking about cinephilia, right? It's like, well, we'll have access to this film. We will go and watch it in this movie theater or at this film festival. Um, but that's not the case, right, for so many, so many people around the world. Um, for a variety of infrastructural legal um, barriers that, that don't allow them to, um, to be able to access them. So developing the, the skills and the know-how and the, again, the interest, right? The, the very like love of cinema to, to find those access to those films that they wouldn't otherwise. It's, um, it's important to consider within that as well. I, I keep thinking there's the, there's a one, um, informal media um, vendor in Mexico City who um, stands just outside the, the Cinematheque. Um, and he has like a full spread categorized by like country, genre, directors. So all of that. And, but he's also very knowledgeable about all the different releases. Um, and so if you ask for something in particular, he'll be able to tell you um, who has it or whether he can get it within the next few weeks and that that kind of knowledge and know-how is, is is impressive even on on, uh, on such a small scale so i'm always i'm always fascinated to to go and check out what what stuff he has every day so that's great is he still there now um as as far as i know he was i haven't been since the pandemic started so i, I okay. don't know how that has impacted um but but yeah he was there last time i visited which was literally just before the pandemic i think a oh, that's before great. that so um, it's, it's always fascinating to, to follow those, um, those trends too, right? So I've been calling it informal media distribution, um, but one of the things that you touched on, and this is part of a, 
um, of how we refer to these markets is whether or not they're pirate markets, right? Um, and you you do mention the how a lot of these films are the, the a way that people can have access to them is through piracy, right? Because there are no legal avenues for them to do that. Um, and so, but you also make an important distinction to not think of piracy as inherently a resistant um, practice, right? There, there are nuances to what piracy allows and doesn't allow. So, um, can you tell us a bit more about that and how you're thinking about the the role of piracy in in this context? Yeah. Um, well, I just think it's very easy to, uh, especially as somebody who's, you know, I lived in Manila as a little little kid, but like, you know, I'm mostly based outside and. Um, I think it's very easy for somebody, even when I, I, when I went there for research, I lived there for, you know, a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I didn't want, I think it's easy to romanticize practices that are extremely mundane for people um, for whom it is just everyday life. And, um, you know, I think it's a little, it can be, it can skew into some exoticism, I think. And mm-hmm. so um, I think that's one aspect of it. Um, for myself, I really want to um, sort of resist tendencies towards especially like diasporic romanticism, which I think is really easy. I have to kind of check myself um, on that when I'm doing research. Um, and then uh, the other thing too, which Ramon Lobato has written about is this idea of, um, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, what's being pirated is what's already being distributed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there are some instances like John Torres, the filmmaker I mentioned earlier, he's written an essay called Piracy Boom Boom, um, which was about, uh, you know, trying to distribute his movies through um, DVD vendor, pirated DVD vendors or informal mm-hmm. DVD vendors. Um, and I think Love Diaz has also tried that, another sort of um, independent filmmaker um, based in uh, Manila area. Um, and so, you know, I think it's just, uh, yeah, it's important to sort of think of informal circulation as a really quotidian part of everyday life in, you know, probably the majority of the world, especially in the early 2000s. Um, and if you sort of broaden that out to encompass like digital piracy, like torrents and so on, mm-hmm. I, you know, it's probably the majority of how people access their movies, you know, and so. Um, but it's also interesting that there are, um, and I think Brian Larkin's made this argument too, right, for, for Nigeria, but once the infrastructure is set up for these sort of informal vendors, um, it allows for um, creatives who don't have an outlet in the sort of established mainstream transnational corporation owned um, channels to also get a way to distribute or at least attempt to right um so there is that potential but that doesn't mean that the entire system is necessarily this this big resistance one of the things that that pirate piracy generally does and even more so now with digital piracy um is it sort of upends this um this idea of the original and the copy right the what used to be a sort of very specific, um, tangible thing of saying this is the original version of the film, and then we can tell what the copies are because it's been ripped on a VHS, so the quality is way different, um, or it's on a VCD, so the quality is very different. But now with, with the digital technology, even the original film being purely digital and the copy being purely digital, um, that kind of distinction is, is collapsing. 
Um, so how does that how is that relevant to thinking about thinking about cinephilia and thinking about film practices broadly? Well, I think there's a a strain of cinephilia um, discourse that is really about connoisseurship, mm-hmm. and um, part of that connoisseurship um, is sometimes about uh, getting particular editions of um, particular works. You know, if you don't have the kind of you know, rarity of the film print, then, you know, if you're going to, uh, or, you know, even like public screenings, like being able to catch an exhibition of X film, um, Mm -hmm. you know, so, uh, you know, part of this is ownership of, um, you know, particular titles, this kind of, um, uh, you know, connoisseurship around special editions, Blu-ray, et cetera, et cetera. I don't even know exactly what the words are to use, to be honest, because I don't really collect <laughs> collect things that way. But um, And so I think it's just really uh, interesting to think about, you know, there is this attempt to create structures of rarity around something that's infinitely reproducible, mm-hmm. you know, through these special editions. And so, um, you know, what interests me in part about piracy or, you know, uh, informal DVD circulation is um, uh, this idea that it it kind of uh, undermines this idea of the original and, um, you know, in some ways undermines the uh, sort of technological fetishism that can come alongside that. Um, it's kind of privileging of clarity and resolution. And um, so I think that those dynamics, I think, are, are really interesting around the original and the copy and their relationship to um, people's sort of fixation on um, technology and connoisseurship. Yeah, and, and to the flip side of what you were mentioning about this sort of technological fetishism, you also point out the, the sort of emphasis on the technology as a particular knowledge um, that the consumers, let's say, or the cinephiles of Manila have to have about um, how to acquire access to these films. So it's not just the access to the message boards and creating the map and figuring out where the vendor goes, but then also developing a kind of um, even, I don't know, street smarts about how to figure out if the copy will be good or if it's worth uh, buying, uh, which I think is fascinating. It's something that um, when we think of only the official channels of distribution, we don't even think about that, right? It's, it's sort of implied, um, but it gives us another dimension into that as well, into those practices as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is this really interesting sort of um, necessary attention to the object in interesting ways, the sort of specifics of the surface of the disc and whether it's blue or gold and... Um, what other clues you can put together to figure out, you know, its origins and um, whether the resolution might be good and, and these kinds of things. Um, yeah, so I thought the way that people shared and circulated that information as well, I thought was really interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a sort of vernacular version of like archivist practice, right, of trying mm. to figure out the, the where the copy is coming from and, and how to preserve it in some ways. This one is perhaps less uh, broaden its, its goals, but it's just about figuring out the ob- from the object, what can it tell about the kind of text that I'll be able to read from it as well too. Um, so 
kind of related, um, I wanted to ask generally about method. Um, and you mentioned this uh, a little bit earlier in terms of you were in Manila for a couple of years um, doing not this research in particular, but research general from where this material comes from. Um, but can you talk more, a little bit more about that in terms of like, how would you characterize your methods and how are they helpful in the kinds of questions and topics that you're focusing on for, for your research? Um, so, you know, I'm, I came from a very interdisciplinary PhD program. Um, and so I think that really informs my approach. Um, mm -hmm. So my PhD program, the department isn't around anymore, but um, it was called Communication and Culture and it was at Indiana University. And so mm -hmm. it was divided into three areas. One was rhetoric and public culture. Another one was film and media studies and another one was performance studies and ethnography. Mm -hmm. And so I worked with people who had expertise in film and media studies um, as well as people who are very interested in discourse analysis and rhetoric and people right. who are very interested in ethnographic practices. Um, and I think my approach to research generally is kind of informed by that sort of, um, in some ways, methodological looseness. Um, you know, I, maybe looseness isn't the right, the best word. <laughs> um, a kind of methodological... Um, Eclecticism. Uh, eclecticism is much better. I was coming up with words like idiosyncrasy, but that just doesn't sound right either. <laughs> eclecticism. Um, you know, so I'm interested in, um, you know, developing arguments and theoretical models that really work from the materials, I think, mm -hmm. you know, and so... Um, as I mentioned about the origins of this project, it really was like I had some materials and I had had, had these experiences and, um, you know, those were sort of around for a while. And then I sort of came across this body of discourse, saw friction there and thought I'd put them together. There was a little bit of um, happenstance and, um, uh, you know, uh, intuition involved, but I think... Uh, you know, I always, I, you know, I think in some circles and some fields, it's like grounded theory or mid-level theorizing or some words that are, or phrases that are used mm -hmm. um, to talk about this kind of approach. But yeah, I think my approach has been to sort of look at things in, um, through multiple lenses and to kind of build out the argument from, um, from the materials. Yeah. Right. right. And, you, and you mentioned this earlier that you um, also meet with like film programmers or curators and get a sense for their um, experiences as well. Um, and then sort of working through the, the message board to figure out what, um, let's say, the everyday film consumer is also doing. So it's um, even within the, the focusing on the location is also the like different stakeholders or focusing on different people as well. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, you said you haven't focused specifically on the aspect of cinephilia, um, but you did have a, a broader sense of uh, a body of research in terms of um, Manila and film practices in Manila. Um, so how is, have you built on that work since, since this article came out and, um, into the book, for, which came out this year? 
2021. Yeah, right? yeah. 2021. Yeah. So um, <laughs> this is something I always tell my grad students is, you know, don't feel bad if it takes a really, really long time to get your work out because it may become more historical. <laughs> and I think that's actually like what ended up happening is, you know, I look at work that I was publishing, um, you know, really close to when I was actually um, living in Manila and, um, you know, uh, sort of writing about a particular time period and, um, you know, the sort of further along that um, uh, I got in terms of, or the further along that um, the, the more distance, I guess the more distance that I ended up having from that particular time period, um, the more clear um, the specificity became. Um, you know, that it was really located within a particular set of um, sort of uh, technologies of production and circulation um, that were, um, you know, in the case of informal circulation, you know, really uh, geographically located in ways that they're no longer. Um, right. And so, you know, I think that was, um, was really key. So, and it's also about a very specific moment of internet history that predates smartphones, predates social media. And so, um, you know, it became very much about like this very specific kind of early aughts um, moment of transition. Especially in this moment of very quick, very accelerated um, technological change from the moment where you were there um, and learning about these processes to the moment where it gets published to when we're reading now, let's say six years later, um, the, the kinds of changes are just significant in, in many, many ways. Um, so it also, it almost becomes like you wrote uh, a film history and like an archival or a, an ethnography of a moment that has completely disappeared, uh, even though it was only, it was less than two decades ago. Um, right. And, and that, that sort of value of capturing that moment when it happened is significant too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really interesting to think about the ways things have changed because, um, you know, there are more micro cinemas that have opened up, um, you know, in Manila since uh, over the past maybe eight years, uh, five years. Some of them have closed since the pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. But, um, and there are a lot of streaming outlets now, um, like iFlix is one, Netflix is there, and HBO, of course, but also um, other ones like. Um, that are based sort of more in the region, like iFlix and um, Hook and uh, View. Um, so, you know, I think streaming is a really important part of um, media circulation now, um, which is also really different, of course. Right, right. And I'm sure that also shapes how we think about, I guess, technologically driven cinephilia now. Um, mm -hmm. If there was a some particular changes, like you were mentioning, Simmerman and, and others were theorizing in the early 2000s. Um, now, 20 years later, the, the sort of range of cinephilic practices is uh, it's a whole other can of worms uh, as well, right? Right. Um, I think the other thing we mentioned the is uh, the aspect of the local, um, and I think when you made the distinction of like this is very much a Manila sort of focused uh, research, and the speaks to those practices um, that kind of becomes central to to how we think about generally global media, right? Because there's this 
fascination to thinking about the global generally as if we can generalize to the whole world. Um, there was a push towards thinking about the nation as the sort of container where we can make those assumptions. But I think in, in this work, as you point out, there's something about the specifics of that city um, that is very different from other cities within the nation, while at the same time there's connections to cities elsewhere in the world, right, in terms of the, the infrastructure and the institutions that allow these films to, um, to circulate, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating, I think. Um, uh, and there's a lot of really interesting work that's being done or that has been done over the past few years um, that's really much more attentive to um, the specificities of film cultures and in, as I mentioned, like places like Mindanao, um, Patrick Campos is publishing really great work in that area, um, Cebuano Cinema. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, I think, really... Um, important not to think about Manila as like representative of the Philippines, which is, you know, this archipelagic uh, place with so many different languages and cultures and so on. Um, and in some ways, maybe Manila in the early aughts would have shared, had more similarities with Bangkok in the early aughts um, than, you know, with um, like Davao in the early aughts, you know, and so, or I, I mean, I'm not saying that's necessarily true, but you know, the possibility is there. Mm -hmm. um, and to think about the similarities between places like Chiang Mai, Jogjakarta, and Baguio, or something like this, um, places that are not necessarily the capital cities, but right. that have become like hubs of um, different kinds of cultural and arts practices, you know. Um, yeah, I think uh, these kind of different ways of thinking about. Um, uh, the geographies that form global media, I think are really important. Yeah, for sure. So Jasmine, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. This episode of the Global Media Cultures podcast was produced by me and edited by Alan Yu, and closing credits music by Cloudmouth. This project is supported in part by the School of Arts, Technology, and Emerging Communication at the University of Texas at Dallas. Global Media Cultures podcast introduces media scholarship about the world to the world. I'm Juan Yamas Rodriguez. Thank you for listening.